it's got to be worth a lot of money. And I went and took it to one of these local guys, you know, that uh, sells antiques and stuff. And he just looked at me and he said, man, you know, I wish I could tell you it was the real deal, but it's a fake. I was hoping that I, for a little bit of money I could get a great big game, but it just didn't work out that way in my life. And I want you to watch this video clip real quick. Kind of help me highlight this morning kind of the, the no pain, no gain concept. like me, you're always looking for ways to improve yourself physically, mentally, and spiritually. And as far as being a Christian, well, when things aren't going your way, who has time these days to stop what you're doing to get down on your knees to pray, or open your Bible to find that help in time of need? I was at such a point in my life when I discovered a truly amazing product, the new Christianity Light Power Bar. When I'm feeling down and don't feel the power of God in me, I can quickly solve the problem by grabbing a Christianity Light Power Bar. It immediately gives me the spiritual boost I need to handle any situation I come up against. No more spending hours reading God's Word, attending boring Bible studies, or even counseling with my pastor. Now, I'm in control of my life and living it for me. So for all you Christians out there that need that spiritual boost fast, try the delicious Christianity Light Power Bar and live life on your terms. The nutritious, delicious, Christian Light Power Bar in four self-indulgent flavors. Vanity Vanilla, My Choice Chocolate, Popular Peanut Butter, and Selfish Cinnamon Raisin. No pain, no gain. No guts, no glory. Our culture today, the word Christian is used very loosely. Uh, over 80% of American people claim to be uh, claim to be a Christian. Uh, when you hear the name Christian, it conjures up all kinds of ideas in people's minds. For some people, it, it means a certain group of people that vote for a, a certain political party. For other pers other people, when they say the name Christian, it means something just cultural. It's kind of what they were born into. For other pr people, the name Christian can can have all kinds of ideas and thoughts. It can be a narrow-minded, bigot, intolerant person. I mean, people have all kinds of opinions when you say Christian. But when you use the word disciple, you really begin to narrow down what Christianity is all about. In the New Testament, the word disciple is used almost 300 times. The word Christian is used three times. And the word believer is used twice. So this concept of being a Christian has really become Christianized or culturalized in, in American civilization because of our foundation. But I want you to know today the idea of being a Christian and what Jesus calls us to live, the kind of life that He commands us and challenges us to live could be two completely different ways of thinking and ways of living. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want you to turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. We're going to read several verses this morning. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning with verse number 12. And I'd like to have you stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. The Bible says, when Jesus heard that John, Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse number 12. 
Matthew 4, verse number 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, and he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he went out and lived at Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun, Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Christ was born, the prophet Isaiah spoke this of the coming of Messiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent. Everyone say, Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Verse number 19. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them, and immediately, everyone say immediately. Immediately they left their boat and their, and their father and followed him. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news. Everyone say good news. The good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Lord, I thank you this morning that you've called us to be followers of you. I thank you this morning that your grace is here upon every here. Our hearts have been prepared in our time of worship as we've come into your presence with thanksgiving and to your courts with praise. And we know that you are here to do something that only you can do. I thank you, Lord, for the hearers that are here, that they made a, a commitment today, Lord, to hear your word. And I thank you that you're going to use this word. Frank, thank you that you're going to use me to communicate the truth, God, that you created us to be a fearless church, a disciple-making church. Jesus, I ask that you will bless this in your wonderful and awesome name. Amen. You may be seated. Can you turn my mic down? Just stay here on the platform, guys. The word disciple literally means to be a learner, a pupil, or a student. Bill, could you hand me that stand right there? I appreciate it. The word disciple literally means to be a learner, a pupil, or a student. It denotes, it denotes one who follows another teaching. De, de, disciples are spoken of as imitators of their teachers. Disciples are spoken of as imitators of the teachers. Uh, there have been lots of disciples throughout history. Disciples will study philosophers. Socrates had disciples. Plato had disciples. Even in Jesus' generation, there were many rabbis that had disciples. And, and, and Judaism, in Jesus' time period, there was two ways to become a rabbi. Uh, one way to become a rabbi is you would grow up in a Jewish home where your father, everyone say father, your father taught you the Torah. And biblical times and in the law of God, God commanded fathers to teach their children. It wasn't the responsibility of a local synagogue to teach their children. It was the responsibility of the fathers to study the Word of God and to teach their children God's Word. Growing up in a household by the age of 13, if you were a good, zealous Jew, you would have memorized the first five books 
the Torah, the Tanakh, the Old Testament law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, you would have committed to memory. Uh, This was a a profound impact on their culture because the Jewish people had been scattered from here to yonder. And for the last 4,000 years, this civilization, which is one of the most enduring civilizations of all people, have held that there is a book. Now, they might not all believe today, but I believe that even in this last generation, God is going to bring an end-time gathering of Jews to come to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. But in Jesus' generation, you could become a rabbi by growing up in the temple and then at the age, or growing up in the home. And, and then at the age of 13, if you had a greater desire to become a teacher, you would go and, and you would study at, at the feet of one of the famous uh, uh, Torah teachers or one of the famous Talmud teachers. Paul the Apostle is an excellent example. At the age of 13, Paul left his hometown of Sarsus and he went to Jerusalem to study at the feet of Gamaliel. I mean, at the age of 13, he was considered to be man enough to take care of himself. And he went and there he studied at this famous teacher's feet. Another way that a person could become a rabbi is if they would just simply know the Word of God and then they would begin to expound on their teaching. You see, a person who was a teacher wasn't a person who just spoke in words, but also who lived in deeds. And here we find Jesus, who was rabbi, rabboni, master, teacher, as he began to expound and he began to call men to become disciples or followers of him. You see, Jesus' words had such impact that when people heard them, they listened. Not everyone agreed. As a matter of fact, his own rejected rejected him. His own family, his own friends rejected him. But there were many that heard the words of Christ. And when they heard the words of Christ, they were convicted of heart and they believed. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, we see the calling of the first disciples. I, I, I believe today the great challenge of the American church is that we bought into the lie of a culture that says... You can be a Christian without being a disciple. You can be a Christian without having deeds and actions and character that match. I mean, you go to the man on the street and there's no one that really wants to not be a Christian. I mean, you know, I know there's other religious groups and there are some people that are really avid atheists. But, but man, I tell you, you could probably put all the atheists in all of America in one building. I mean, when it really comes down to it, they're the loudest They make the most noise, but when it really comes down to it, deep inside the heart of every man, woman, boy, girl, they know that there's something outside of themselves. They just know that. They know that. And Jesus here calls His disciples to Himself. The challenge that we have in the American church is that we many times try to dumb down or streamline the gospel of Christ to simple conversion rather than discipleship. I can explain the difference between being a comfort and a disciple like this. The difference is between giving birth and raising your child. A woman was in the hospital giving birth to her first baby. And as the pains and contractions increased, she grabbed her nurse and she pulled her close and screamed, Is the hard part over? The nurse smiled and said, Honey, this is the easiest part. The hard part is the next 18 years. And all the parents said, Amen. Amen. The cost of being a disciple is great. The cost of being a disciple is great, but the reward is even greater. 
You see, the cost of being a disciple means change lives, means change families, means change communities. The cost of being a disciple means a changed church. People who are radically committed to this person that we know as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus set the precedent for the life of a disciple and making disciples and creating disciples. In the Gospels, Jesus called people who were zealots. Simon the Zealot today would be called a terrorist. That's what he'd be called. Because Simon the Zealot was a, he was a terrorist for the cause of Judaism. He believed that Rome had no right to inhabit the holy city of David, the city of peace, the city of Jerusalem. And he was radically opposed to it. And as a matter, he was so radical that he wouldn't even kill someone for the cause. That's why they called him a zealot. He was radical in this belief. And guess who Jesus called? Jesus called a modern-day terrorist to become a follower. Jesus called a tax collector, an IRS agent, a guy who used to skim a little bit off the top. He called the bookie, the bookmaker. He called the fisherman and the cake maker. I mean, he called all kinds of people, this common people of the day who were young, men who really didn't have a purpose. Some maybe thought they did, but they really didn't know their purpose. And he called them to become followers of him. For three years, Jesus lived with He trained them. He stuck with those He stuck with him who was. You see, Jesus lived with them. He ate with them. He drank with them. He prayed with them. He taught them what the Scripture said. He cried with them. He died for them. But after three years of Jesus' toil, He died upon a cross. But that's not the end of the story. See, Jesus just didn't die for you. But the Bible says that Jesus ascended into the place of hell and there He proclaimed gospel, the gospel of freedom to those who were held captive. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the dead declaring that He was Lord. He was King. He was God. He was the risen risen Savior. He was the resurrected Jesus. He was the author and the finisher of life. He was the Alpha and the Omega. He was the beginning and the end. He was the author of life. He declared that. He declared that. See, Jesus' message today to you and I is that we must become disciples, disciplined ones, pupils, learners, one who will follow after the way of our Master. When I look at our story this morning, Jesus is calling these beginning men. I want you to see verses 18 and 19. I want you to see this call. In verse number 18, it says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw two brothers. He saw two. Everyone say two. In the Scriptures, this principle of two is powerful. The Old Testament declares that one will put a thousand to flight, but two will put ten thousand. The prophet Amos declared, How can two walk together unless they're agreed? The the writer of Ecclesiastes said a two or two cords are good, but a three-stranded cord is easy, even better and not easily broken. The principle of two in the kingdom, you never see Jesus sending a disciple out alone. Never, not one time. I shared with the men in our Wednesday night group when we were finishing, I said, man, every single one of you need to have someone, another brother in your life that you can get bare wire with. Every man. 
Uh, you see, because there are issues and things in your life that your wife isn't going to quite understand the way that another man is. And I'm not talking about any kind of man. I'm talking about a godly man. I'm talking a man that's pursuing the same goals, the same desires to become a Christ follower and a sold-out Christian, a person who's dedicated to the cause of Christ. Every man. Jesus sent them out by two. It was Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting it, their, their net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And he said, come and follow me. You were once were fishermen, but now I'll make you fisher of men. You see, the first thing that Jesus did when he called people to himself is that he changed their identity. He changed their identity. You see, in our culture today, we find our identity in what our position is, what our work is, what our stature is, what our role is. If you're a stay-at-home mom, your identity is found in, I am a mother. If you're a person that's working in the work world, your identity many times can be found in the kind of work or the title of your job. Your identity is found in the kind of things that you do with your life rather than the person who you are. See, Peter and James, they were fishermen. Peter and James were fishermen, but Jesus said you would no longer just be fishermen, but now you will become fisher of men. See, our lives are not our own. When Jesus called them, He called them to a changed identity, to a different way of thinking about their life. If your life today is in pursuit and you're a young person and you're trying to figure out the next step and what your career path is and what you're going to do with the rest of your life, I will tell you the greatest thing that you can do to discover that is, is just to give yourself wholeheartedly to the kingdom of God. I mean, just throw everything in your heart. Throw it into God. Throw it into Jesus. Learn what it is to become a follower of Christ. Because when you do that, you know what happens? The Bible says all these other things will be added unto you. God will give you dreams. God will give you desires. God will give you purpose. You'll begin to all of a sudden find yourself in a position that you did not earn. You'll find yourself in a place that you didn't work for. You'll, you'll find yourself doing things that no one could have orchestrated for. You'll get a phone call. Surprisingly, someone heard about your name and you don't even know how it happened inviting you to do this job. I, I got to tell you, the greatest thing that you can do the greatest thing that you can do to find God's will for your life is to throw yourself into becoming a disciple of Christ. Throw yourself into becoming a follower of Jesus. Follow me, he said. He changed their identity. Their search for significance, their search for meaning now would be found in Christ alone. He would become their identity. But not only did he change their identity, he taught them how to live. And just a couple of pages, just a couple of verses down, immediately Jesus calls his disciple. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but he calls them to the hillside and he begins to proclaim them the way of the kingdom. He taught them how to live the blessed life. He taught them how to be happy. He did. He taught them. He taught them that the kingdom was righteousness, joy, and the Holy Spirit. He, he proclaimed to them the way of life. He taught them in word. He taught them how to be happy and blessed. He taught them about their mission to be salt and light in the world. He taught them the real meaning of the law. He said, listen, the law of Moses, he didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill it. Man was not made for the law, but the law was made for man. He taught them about real men who would control their anger and would be willing to forgive. He taught them about morality and how to live a pure life. He taught them how to pray. 
I mean, Jesus taught them about every dimension of their life. He talked to them about money, possessions, and eternity. And He said, you can't love money and you can't love God at the same time. And the way that you know that you love money is by the way when you look at your checkbook, you can see where your money is spent. If your money is spent on all consumables for you and your family, you're not loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's just, it's not me just telling you this. It's the way of the kingdom. Jesus proclaimed it. Unless you surrender all of your life, all of your heart, unless you obey all of His word. This is impossible, you say. It is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. That's why you need God. That's why you need Jesus. You can't do this on your own. But Jesus taught them the way that they were to live their life. He taught them about hypocrisy and judging others. He taught them what it really was to be a true disciple and follower of Jesus. He messed with their minds. He messed with their minds. He messed with their their understanding of money. He, He messed with their mission and their morals, their mindsets and beliefs about God and the way that they treated other men. He got to meddling in every area of their life. He meddled. I mean, he got down to brass tacks with them. He told them, this is the kingdom life. This is the way we are to live. This is the way that you are to walk. And in verse number 17, I want you to see his message. You see, when Jesus called them, the Bible says that he told them to repent. The word repent in the Greek is metaneia. Everyone say metaneia or metanoia. The word concept of metaneia or metanoia literally means to change the way that you think. That's the word repentance. It is the first word of the gospel. It's the first word of the gospel. In other words, you can't be a Christian unless you repent. You can't be, you just, it's not a cultural thing. It's not, not just an emotional thing. It's not a baptism thing. It's a, it's a choice and a decision of the will to become a follower of Christ and to realize that you're a sinner and you need a Savior. And the Bible says that when you confess your sins, that He will forgive you and to cleanse you from all your wrongdoing. See, He had a message. It's the message for this generation. It's a message for every generation. Change the way you think. Change the way you think. We live in a generation that's so confused with the cultural malaise of being politically correct and not offending anybody. Let me tell you, Jesus didn't die on a cross because He didn't not offend people. Jesus offended the liberals and the conservatives. Jesus offended the Republicans and the Democrats. Jesus offended the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He offended them all because the nature of man is to rally around their own cause rather than around the one cause. That's the cause of Jesus Christ and the cross for which He died and the resurrection for which He gave His life for you and I. Let me tell you today, there is a cause today. It's the cause to become a disciple and to proclaim this message. It's a message of hope. The only way that men in our generation can find freedom and liberty, the only way that they can truly be happy is to follow the commands of this message. Wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking about Jesus. Our culture today, Jesus means many things to many people. This weekend, all over the news, there was this account of a Harvard divinity Harvard Divinity professor that supposedly came across a a 4th century Coptic fragment of a little tiny, some kind of text that was written by some old rabbi or Christian sage. It was about eight verses long, maybe. 
maybe eight verses long and it was broken, but there was one little tiny phrase in there that said, Jesus said to his wife. One little tiny phrase. This fourth century document, only one, probably spurious, said there's no proof that this is even real. This one little tiny fragment, one little tiny fragment, it's got the whole world in an uproar. The fact is Jesus never did marry. He never married. He he chose not to. Jesus was the sinless Son of God. There's not one account in the Gospel writers, the men who knew Him the most, the men who lived with Him, the men who who slept in the same house that He slept in, the men that ate with Him every day and fished with Him and preached the Gospel with Him and healed the sick to Him and and the hundreds of people that were alive in Jesus' generation that gave eyewitness to the Gospels. And the thousands and thousands of documents that we have from before the 4th century. It's never been written before. All of a sudden, one little tiny fragment of paper pops up. And people are saying that what the Bible says about Jesus isn't true. Let me tell you, don't be so easily deceived. It's why you must study the Word of God for yourself. It's why you must become a disciple. Someone said, Amen. People have all kinds of ideas about who Jesus is. He's a good man. He's all these things. Jesus was the Son of God. He was the living Lord. He was the Messiah, the King of Kings. We think wrong about other people. We frame people in our own framework. I was in a city called Dubrovnik just a couple of weeks ago in Croatia. And I was talking to this man about Christ. And as I was talking about the Lord, he said, Are you a Jehovah Witness? I said, no, I'm not a Jew. He said, are you a Mormon? I said, no. I said, I'm a Christ follower. I'm a Christian. In his culture, in that part of Croatia, if you talk about Jesus, you're either a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness because they're the ones that are radical for what they believe. His framework, the way he perceived me because I talked about Jesus was distorted by a bias. A preconceived idea that he had about me as an individual. We look at other people in the same kind of light, in the same kind of, same kind of mindset. My wife and I were talking to a Jewish couple on the boat on our, on our 25th anniversary, and I was talking about Christ, and, and they had a certain perception about an evangelical pastor. Their perception was that I was ignorant, that I was bigoted, that I was selfish, that I, was, I, I had all these preconceived ideas that, that fed into the worldview. But when I began to talk to them, the woman at the end of the conversation actually said, I actually think I kind of like you. Why? She had a certain mindset about what she thought Christian people should be like. We have wrong mindsets about people. We have wrong thinking about God's Word. You see, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is a message for every generation. He shared them with Him, His authority. You see, when Jesus preached, the Bible says that He began to heal. When He called them, He began to go to to teach and to preach and proclaim in their synagogues the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. He healed every disease and sickness among the people. That's what Jesus did, all of them. See, He was the author of life. He had power over death. He had power over devils. He had power over demons. He had power over sickness and over disease. And we read that and say, oh, that's really great. But I want you to see what what he does for his disciples. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, just a couple of pages over. Then verse number 
Matthew chapter 10, verse number 1. And the Bible says, Jesus called His disciples. Everyone say disciples. His learners, His students, those who were following the way of their Master. He called His disciples and He gave them what? He gave them what? He gave them authority. Dunamis. Supernatural power. Roger Salva works for the Seminole Sheriff's Department. And he rides around town and he's got a little badge that he wears on his chest. And that badge represents the authority, not his authority. That badge represents the authority of the county of which he represents. Now, Roger is a good guy with the Seminole County Sheriff's Department. He's a community service officer. But back in the day, he used to carry a gun and and be a law enforcement officer. And the reason that when that police officer pulls behind you and your heart sinks down into your chest and you start to get a little nervous at the hands, the reason that you feel that way is because that law officer has been, been given delegated authority to bring you back in the line, to help you understand that the 35 means not 55. Since delegated authority. You take away that gun, you take away that badge, you put him in just Joe Schmo clothes, and he drives down the road, and guess what? You just blow right on past him. When you're driving down the road, and you're in another county, and you see a police officer, and you can tell he's off duty, you just pass him right on up. You'll you be right next to him, and you realize he's off duty. And, man, that's an Osceola County police officer. I'm in Seminole County. He can't do it. Why? Because he has no authority. Oh, come on. You know you've done that. Don't be looking at me like that. Oh, you know that. But why is it if you're in Seminole County and there's a Seminole County Sheriff, you just line yourself right up. You're double-checking that speed. You're eyeing that thing right on in. Beep, 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 beep. He has delegated authority. Jesus delegated the authority of the kingdom to His disciples. You see, this commission, this commission of being a disciple, is that mean, it means that we are people who have healing. We are people who have healing in our prayers. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe that when believers gather together, something happens in the supernatural. There's a dynamic realm that we can't see. It's called the unseen realm. And it's far more believable. And it's far more powerful than the seen realm. It's a realm of principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. And Paul, when he described this unseen realm, he said, listen, the weapons of your warfare are not through the words of man. They're not through your finagling or wrangling or human bombs. But the weapons of our warfare as a believer are mighty through God, through the pulling down of strongholds to the exalting of Christ. Let me tell you today, there is a powerful weapon that you've been given. It's the delegated authority of Christ. If you're a disciple, you can pray and you can believe that God's going to answer. Someone said, Amen. He gave them authority. A clear indication that a man is not truly a disciple is that he refuses to submit to the authority that God has placed in his life. Authority has been abused. Authority has been misplaced. But God clearly works through the structure of authority. God works through your boss. God works through your boss. God works through your government. God works through your president. God works through your family. If you're, a, if you're a son or a daughter, God works through your father. God works through them. The authority that God's placed into your life. 
God works to the authority that He places in your life. I understand authority because I'm a man under authority. I have a group of brothers that I've submitted to. And I have another brother that's right in, right in this Central Florida community that I said, Brother, you're my authority. And I just, I've done this recently in the last several months. And I've got to tell you, I haven't been under that kind of authority in a long time. And it ain't always easy. It's not ha- always easy to have another person tell me what to do. I don't like people telling me what to do. But I say, yes, sir. I want you to do this, Eugene. I want you to do this, Eugene. Yes, sir. He's not even paying me. I get to do it for free. So I understand authority. That God works through the authority of my life. God works through the authority of your life. See, this whole principle of discipleship is about coming underneath the covering of God for your life. All authority has been given to us today. You see, these disciples of Jesus understood that there was a price to pay. It's the cost. It's the cost. The cost of being a disciple is the cross. They took my cross. The cross has been in the auditorium for years. Can you put the picture of the cross up on the screen? The cross. The cross. You know what the cross represents? The cross represents death. Death to an old way of life. Death to your own ideas. Death to self-control. That's what the cross represents. It represents a death to me. But it also represents life. See, there's not only a cross, but there's also a crown. There's not only a cross, but there's also a crown. And when you embrace the cross, you receive the crown of life, eternal life, everlasting life. See, that's the power of the message that we're talking about today. This whole thing about being a disciple is embracing the cross. Jesus said, if if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will find it for my sake. A.W. Tozer said, If Jesus Christ is not controlling all of me, the chances are very good He's not controlling any of me. This whole concept of cultural Christianity just doesn't fly in relationship to the Scriptures. The challenge that we have is that we're not perfect and we fall short and we recognize that we don't measure up to the standard, to the cross of Christ. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that? Now, there was a man who in the early 1900s, his name was Shackleton. And Shackleton had a big desire to go to the South Pole. And he put an advertisement in the London Times and it said this, Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wage, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in the case of success. He was flooded with 5,000 applicants eager to join the team. He selected 56 men. Over the next 16 months, over the next 16 months, they endured every kind of hardship imaginable. Within the first three months, their ship actually sank. Within the first, it actually sank. And the men were left stranded on a little ice island. They weren't rescued for 16 months, but miraculously, not one of the men perished. 
But Shackleton had got farther to the South Pole than anybody in all of human history. He was not deterred. That was the third time he had tried. When he gets back to London, he puts another ad in the London Times to take a fourth exposition to make it to the South Pole. He never made it. He died. But I always admired this guy because he had a dream. He had a desire. He had a goal. And that goal, he realized, would cost him something. If you want the goal of being a disciple, if you want the goal that at the end of your life you live forward, and when you breathe your last breath, you hear these words, well done, my good and faithful servant. There's a cost. It's a cost of the cross. It costs you today. It costs me today. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus told his disciples, he said, I want you to go into all the earth and I want you to proclaim. I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Here's the thing. You're not alone today. You're not alone today. Jesus said, I want you to go while you are living your life, while you are going. It ain't just about you being a disciple, but it's also about you discipling others. 1988, a superintendent from a large movement in Africa came to the United States. And he was sharing with one of the local Bible colleges uh, what the requirement was for someone to actually be baptized. And he said, listen, we don't baptize anyone in our churches until they actually go out win someone to Christ and begin to disciple them. Because we know that, listen, if there's no cost, if there's, if there's no disciple-making process in the person's life, they're not really sold out. And we can't live with the church of a bunch of wishy-washy, mimby family because there's too much of a threat for our lives. we got to know that everyone is in this thing. We gotta have all of our chips in. We gotta have all of our cards in. We gotta, we gotta live this thing full tilt for God. There's no other way to live. Every other way that we try to live comes up short and it leads us to problems and brokenness and divorce and addiction and failure and lack of success. God has a way. I want you to go and make disciples. Make. That's a powerful word. It's a responsibility on the believer. It starts with your own family. And it reaches out beside your family to your friends and people that God's given you a burden. If you have influence with someone in your life, if you have influence. In other words, if there's someone that likes you just for who you are, you know what? That's a person that you can reach for Christ. That's a person that you can start to share the gospel with. You can start leading them in the way. And then he said, I want you to teach them. I want you to make disciples, baptize them, teach them all the things that I've commanded. Bill Gothard says that there's 49 commands. 49 commands that Jesus gave. Jesus talked about humility. Jesus talked about marriage. Jesus talked about sexual purity. Jesus talked about forgiving your enemies. Jesus, I mean, he just nailed it all. Then he said, listen, if you want life, if you really want life, you got to give up your life. If you want John 10, 10, I've come to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. You got to give up your life. You got to give up control. I want complete surrender of your heart complete surrender. 
every church, every community. I'm listening to a pastor. I don't agree. Like Linda says, I don't agree with everything that he says, but God's using him mightily in our nation right now. And I was listening to him this week. He's a young man. He's probably not even 40 years of age. He's planted hundreds of churches in America. And he talks about the radical commitment. The reason I listen to him is because he pastors in Seattle. And he started his church in an area called Capitol Hill. And the Capitol Hill is right next to the Central District where my wife and I started our very first church. Capitol Hill is known for its promiscuity. I mean, homosexuals literally control that part of Seattle. And this man, Mark Driscoll, went into Capitol Hill and he started preaching the gospel. And he started telling the truth. And started telling people there's another way to live. And it was edgy and the music was a little bit edgy and weird. And they got candles and smoke and all kinds of wild things that they do. But he called them to a radical commitment to Christ. I was listening to him this last week. And he said, you know what we do? He said, we, we have our pastors meet with every member, every member in our church. Our churches have over 14,000 members now. And every year we meet with them. And then we ask them three or four questions. How are you doing your marriage? How are you doing spiritually? How are you doing with your money? Are you manage your money? How much money are you going to give to the kingdom of God? They actually ask them every year, how much money? You would think, oh my God, everybody would be running out the door. You know what? Exactly the opposite happens. The higher they raise the bar, the more people that are attracted. You know what? Because they know that there's a bunch of sold out people. The newspapers in Seattle are very liberal and they hate Mark Driscoll. I mean, they're always looking for something. They hate what he preaches. They hate that he, that he declares that it's a Jesus generation, that Seattle's going to have more Christians and they're going to have perverts. I mean, Jesus, he stands and he just calls it the way that he sees it. But there's something inside of the heart of man that's looking for a cause. Well, I just want to live easy and peaceful. The moment you embrace the cross, your life will be a challenge. Your life will be a challenge because the Holy Spirit will call you to lay down your way and your will to do His way and His will. Go, make, teach. And here's the promise. I'm going to be with you to the very end. Here's the promise. Jesus is with us today in this room right now. Jesus is here right now. And He's raising the bar. He said, I'm not looking for converts. I'm not looking for easy believism. I'm looking for people who are going to sell out. You have your job and you have your responsibilities, but my first call is to the kingdom of God. We have a process here we call the Connect Four. And I was thinking about the process that Jesus, He just really laid out go evangelism. You know, go and, and make. Make disciples. Make disciples. Teach them. Teach them. Teach them. My promise is that I'm going to be with you to the very end. You're not alone in this life. You're not powerless against Satan's attacks. You're not just a victim to your circumstances. You're not just a victim to the whims of the devil and the way that life rolls. You were created to be a victim. You were created to be a victor. Paul the Apostle said in Romans chapter 8, I am more than a conqueror. Come on. I am more than a conqueror. You're more than a conqueror today. We have this Connect Four process that we, we have as a team. We've processed and over the years we've developed it. And we have this morning, we welcomed about 15 new members, not all at this campus, but we welcomed about 15 new members today. And, and listen, this isn't like sacred, but it's a process that the Lord has helped us to make disciples. And if you're here today and you've never become a member of a local church or you're not even a member of City Church yet, you could do that today. There's an action step for every person here today. 
Every person, there's an action step for you. You could check out the box if you'd like to be part of the next member class. Where you can hear the values and the vision and the, the direction that City Church is going. and Meet other people who are just coming into this local church. But really, being a member of the body of Christ is symbolized by baptism. If you've never been water baptized, and by water baptism we mean immersion. We mean you get water on the brain. We're good Baptists at City Church. We believe that you should get water on the brain. I mean, we got to plunge you all. If you get a little bit of water, we're going to hold you all the way down until you get all the water. Amen. No, just kidding. No, we, we believe in baptism by immersion. It's Jesus who's baptized in the Jordan River. Jesus was baptized. The disciples were baptized, and he sent them out to immerse them in water. You've been baptized. You can check that off on the box today. This Wednesday night at 7 p.m. on the airport campus, we're starting the class. It's an eight-week discipleship boot camp that, that, listen, if you haven't been to this class, well, I've been a Christian for 27 years. You know what that tells me? The moment someone tells me that, it tells me they need to go to the class because they're not humble yet because they think they got it all. I already heard that before. What did you tell me something new, pastor? Jesus was lowly and humble of heart. It's a, it's a process. But some of you are brand new to the kingdom. Man, we talk about how to study the Bible. We talk about how you know the Bible is true. We talk about how to give your testimony. We talk about the power of generosity. We talk about forgiveness. One of the most powerful lessons in the class is on forgiveness. So many people are bound up and held back because they can't release for forgiveness. And then we have groups. and We were working this week as a team. and We've identified at least 30 different groups that you can connect in here at City Church. Next week we'll have a brochure. And Call it connected points, ways that you can get connected. Get involved in a group. Maybe you're not actively serving. Maybe you're not actively serving. Look, you were called to the local church. You were called to serve in your local church. If you're not actively serving, today you can check off that box. I'd like to find out about how to serve in my church. We'll have someone contact you. And then this weekend, the women, the women are going to have their encounter. Come on, women. Amen. Hallelujah. Man, God's going to come. I know God's going to show up and show off. I believe that women are going to be set free. Women are going to take the next step in being sanctified, being made more like Jesus, having a greater understanding of what it is to be a disciple and follower of Jesus. I challenge every woman, if you haven't signed up for, for, for the encounter, you do that before you leave today. Every person here, this next step is for you. I want you to bow your heads this morning. And this is our altar call. This is our altar call today. I want you to take just a moment. God's speaking to you today. God's speaking. you got this little card. My next step today. Well, if you haven't attended the class, your next step is to go to the class this Wednesday night. If you've never been to an encounter, maybe you were in an encounter three or four years ago, but boy, you just need a fresh infusion of the Holy Spirit to be around some godly people. And I encourage you to Make yourself available to the encounter this coming weekend. Maybe you're not a member of the body of Christ. You're not a follower of Jesus. You've never accepted Christ. You haven't embraced the cross. You haven't given Him your whole life, fully surrendered. If that's you today, you can check out that box. We're going to follow up. We're going to call you this week. We're going to have someone pray with you. But you're here right now. And one of these apply to you. I want to take this moment. And allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. To take your next step. See, discipleship is always about the next step of following Jesus. Father, I thank you this morning for every person that's in this room. 
thank you for your grace that you're penetrating our hearts. You're calling us to the cost of the cross to make the next step in you. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, open our hearts. You're here this morning, and you've never, every, every eye's bowed. There's no one looking, but you're here today. You know that your life isn't right with Jesus. You know that you might be, have said a prayer, but you know that you're not a disciple yet. You know that you're not all in. You haven't fully surrendered. I want to give you this moment to become part of God's family. I want to give you this moment to become a disciple, a follower of Jesus, to know what it is to truly experience forgiveness in life. If you hear this moment, I, I, I would regret it if we missed this opportunity to give you that opportunity with no one looking right now. If you haven't surrendered your life to Christ and you know your life isn't right with Him today, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. One, two, three, right now in this room. Anyone in this room right now? Okay, I see the hand. Let's see anyone else this morning. Can we pray together this morning as a congregation? Lord Jesus, I thank You for calling me I thank you that you died on the cross just for me. I thank you that you rose from the dead and you conquered death. You conquered the devil and you conquered hell just for me. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to change my heart, to cleanse me from my sins. I acknowledge you today. I believe that you are my Savior. Help me today to surrender my life fully to you in your wonderful name. Listen, if you said that prayer today and you really meant it, there's a place that you can check off on that box, and that card. We're going to stand together this morning. And as we close this anthem of worship and praise, on your way out this morning, I want you just to drop those cards. Ushers will be at all the doors. And if you can drop your card.